0: Yeah, on Two Twins
1: Episode 3 We did it Episode Trace Welcome to Two Twins in an album.
2: And now two twins in an album in three episodes. Just by the numbers there. I mean, I did you think we were gonna make it to three? I don't know. I wasn't sure we were gonna make it to episode zero.
1: I guess that's true. This is technically four because we do have episode zero. But welcome. Welcome nonetheless. And, uh, you know, we, lots happened actually since the last episode, we are now on Apple podcasts. We are now on YouTube. We are hopefully soon to be on Spotify. In fact, maybe uh, by the time this episode comes out, we will be on it. We are on Twitter. The number two underscore twins underscore album is where you can find us.
2: Safe to say that we're, we're sweeping the nation safe to say. Oh, listen, this thing's really taken off. And uh, that part is not surprising. We knew this was going to be landmark by episode three. I think is fair. Taking over the world
1: one useless album review at a time. Let me share with you a Merriam-Webster definition
2: to, to kick off episode three. The word is indulgence. And the definition is to yield to the desire of. The secondary definition is to give free rein to. And the
1: third tier definition is to take unrestrained pleasure in.
2: When you talk about Oasis, and specifically you talk about Oasis, be here now their third album.
1: It's amazing how sometimes an album can not only be a collection of of work, but it can also really reflect the environment and the and the setting in which they were made.
2: And I think, you know, the best way to frame up this setting was one of indulgence, chaos, indulgence, arrogance indulgence pressure and some indulgence and maybe a little cocaine to go with it maybe some of that too yet all combined with what you could always bank on with noel gallagher and that is some really really outstanding songs
0: Name,
3: name me a great band in the history of rock music and tell me one
1: that wasn't indulgent. I can't. You know what I can't do? I can't provide you with the example you're looking for. I can't do it. But what I can do is I can take us round and round. Nicholas, what is on your turntable?
3: Lately, I've been uh, getting into things that uh, during the pandemic that I've been able to order. You know, there hasn't been many record store visits. Uh, some of the things that have been on the turntable of recent would be um, the Erasure album, I Say, I Say, I Say.
0: Ah, uh, yes.
3: Yes which I finally got an original pressing vinyl copy of. That's the 1994 album with the hit Always on it. But it's, it's a fantastic album, top to bottom. Maybe their best of the 1990s decade. Although I know that you would
1: probably beg to differ on that. We, we may end up digging into that at some point.
2: Spoiler alert. Teaser. <laughs> Tickle you with a feather. So that's one of but a, them. but a great choice, obviously from one of my
1: all-time favorite groups.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a great album to dig, dig into. Uh, Veruca Salt is a band I've been getting back into. Their album Resolver, one that came out actually in two thousand, and that is without Nina Gordon. So that is when Louise Post took over the band, and kind of an underrated phase for that band. But Veruca Salt's Resolver has made a couple turns, and then. Uh, Roxy Music. Uh been listening quite a bit lately to Siren and just trying to dig out all the various complexities of that great
1: album. So that's what's rounded around round for me. What's round around for you too? Some very fine choices there. Three things I've had, there's a band called Everything Everything. They've really become one of my favorite bands of recent from the UK. And they actually have a new album coming out this summer, uh, which was great to hear. But I really uh, like their 2015 album, Get to Heaven. They are a very unusual band, very proggy in a lot of ways. The second, uh, also a band that I know both of us are thrilled to have just announced a new album coming out in August, and that is The Secret Machines. Their album, 10 Silver Drops, is one that, you know, not too long of time goes by before it finds its way onto the turntable. But they have decided, at least the two members, after Benjamin Curtis died several years ago, they have decided to get together and record new music. And it's absolutely thrilling that. Uh, for fans of that band like I know Nubs and I are because you kind of started to wonder if as an outfit they were going to make music again so their uh, 2006 album 10 Silver Drops has certainly been in the rotation and is a very special album from a very special band that thankfully we're going to hear from um
3: super underrated album sad. anyone who hasn't heard that make sure and check it out it's so good
1: yeah it really is a very special band and then my last one's a little sad we we lost benny mardonas um this week his album never run never hide has always been a, a favorite of mine obviously his classic song into the night was on this album and it's a it's a nice listen uh benny Mardones had a incredible voice, um, legendary voice for somebody that is known for just one song. Um, He had a very interesting life, you know, and coming up very quickly and acquired a bit of a, a drug addiction and then relocated to upstate New York to sort of clean his life up. And upstate New York, the town of Syracuse in particular, really embraced Benny Mardonez and he became a kind of a local legend. He was singing and playing music up until a few years ago when he got uh parkinson's disease and you know became quite ill and and we actually lost him just a few days before this recording so I've been um, paying some tribute and paying some homage uh to uh Benny Mardonez, who uh clearly was the voice uh for writing that song into the night with Robert Tepper of one of the finest uh easy listening. Uh, adult contemporary songs, uh, not just of the uh, early nineteen eighties, but of all time. So, uh so R.I.P. Benny.
3: I want you to know, I'll be uh, tributing Benny Mardones for the rest of this show by doing the show uh, in my Pillow Talk, Alan Aldman voice.
1: Yeah, you know, you do always think of Alan Aldman when when you hear "Into the Night" because that was one of those you just he played it it seemed like every night oh yeah and every Alderman, show every show yeah and alan Aldman. for those of you non-detroiters uh out there he was a late evening radio host who had a show called pillow talk and he had this just absurdly deep voice and he would you know say all these like sexy things and i mean it was it was hilarious it was kind of uh, you know, I don't know if like married couples actually like listened to this together and sort of got all into it or whatever. But uh, but it was a uh, it was a pretty classic, probably through the eighties and nineties, I think. Right when when uh, pillow talk was a thing on on WNIC. Yeah. yeah, I don't
3: I don't think pillow talk would fly in twenty twenty. It, it, it was pretty risque, I have to say. I mean, the, the and it was on very late at night. He would always. If I remember right, he would every every night he would do this like starlight, star bright thing. Oh, yeah. And often out of that, he would play Into the Night by Benny Mardonez. And an interesting tidbit about you, Tove, with Into the Night. And this shows you what it was like to grow up in the 80s and 90s. It it took you, I think, two and a half years to figure out
1: who sang that song. Oh, totally. In in fact, I, I had to call a radio station. Um, which, you know, th- this is what, this is the type of thing we'd have to do when we were younger. You know, you couldn't go on Google and type in, you know, if I could fly, I'd pick you up lyrics and then it would pop. I mean, you, you, you had no idea. And it was one of those songs that on, um, you'd hear it on Pillow Talk and you'd hear it sometimes. The station I called was 95.5, uh, because they had a, also an, an evening segment where they would play lots of 80 songs and they'd throw in ballads. And one day I just, I, I had this buddy in high school and we used to sing it all the time, screw it around and, and, uh, sing it to the cheerleaders, you know, when we were on bus rides to games and stuff. And finally it was like, I don't know who does this song. So I actually physically called the radio station and asked them and, uh, they said, Benny Mardonas. I'm like, all right, I guess i got to figure out who the hell Benny Mardonis is now, you know, but I got, you know, an artist, uh, and, a, and certainly a, a voice that ended up having, uh, kind of an interesting story and and certainly some good music, but you are right. Pillow Talk with Alan Aldman. Very creepy. It was a very creepy show. Oh, so creepy. Um,
3: and the music, it was, you know, it was all love songs. It was like 80s and 90s love songs. And it was the type of stuff that for you and I, as we'd spend the days listening to bands like the one we'll be talking about here in a few minutes, there was still kind of a love for those cheesy late oh, night yeah. love songs. So there, you know... Tuning into pillow talk was not, uh, it was kind of like a guilty pleasure for us during that time, I think.
1: Indeed. I, I, I think it was like that for everybody. And as we talked about a little bit in the Phil Collins episode, uh, you know, we've never shied away from a good old fashioned uh, adult contemporary love song. At least I haven't. I got, I got no problem with that. So the real question is, you know, aside from, uh, I bet we could do a whole show about Alan Aldman if we really wanted to get into it, but, and Eddie Mardona maybe, (laughs) but I, you know, I think at some point we should probably focus on the, the album this week. And the real question is, can we get through an Oasis podcast without saying the F word? I was thinking, should you
3: and I just spend the whole show arguing just to really get like Meta about the Gallagher brothers. Should we take on their persona and and you walk out in the middle of the show and then yeah. I quit and then yeah. and then yeah. we come back and do a great few minutes, but then it falls apart again. We could actually
1: mirror the Oasis story during this podcast. That's a great thought. I didn't even think about that. We can we can really just take on the personality of the brother. This might be our last episode. In that case, we might have a sort of knockdown drag out
2: and just be done with it noel gallagher said it it was a bunch of guys all on coke in the studio not giving a fook you know i've never appreciated
3: noel's take on this whole album for a guy as brilliant as he is i just think he's way off i think he he completely overlooks the brilliance of it and he completely underplays the elements of it that are so incredible it's like every time noel opens his mouth about be here now i've tended to just ignore it because he he says statements like that with which cheapens
1: this really incredible work well in typical oasis fashion you're right about noel's take and liam absolutely loves the album so even on their opinions of this work how long has it been 23 years later uh, you know they still can't agree. You know I, I don't care what anybody says about the confidence and the cockiness and and the swagger of these guys. Noel in particular being the creative force. Following up, what's the story? Morning Glory. There's pressure there. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you are. Noel Gallagher's one of the best rock songwriters certainly of our generation and probably in the history of rock and roll, there's still an insane amount of pressure to follow that up. And everybody handles, you know, whether it's sports, whether it's business, whether it's uh, something artistic or certainly whether it's the music business, particularly around this time, you know, everybody handles that pressure in different ways. And I think these guys certainly had their way of dealing but I, I I definitely think that was at play. Even with a band that at the time there was no bigger band in the world. There was no band that was more on a roll. There was no band that was sitting on more material than this band was. And we'll get into that certainly when we talk about the album. But I still think there was an unbelievable amount of pressure for a bunch of kids who grew up in blue collar Manchester, who you know, probably weren't scoring particularly high on the uh, SAT uh, if, if we had to take a gamble in, in, uh, in guessing that. And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight is a result of a group of people or a couple people, if you want to single out the brothers, or one in particular, if you want to single out Noel that had an unbelievable amount of fame, an unbelievable amount of attention, and an unbelievable amount of pressure to really come through with something special. In what was, you know, we talked in episode one about In Utero being certainly the most anticipated album of of its time. I'm not sure worldwide if there certainly was at that time or really if there has been since an album that's been as anticipated as Be Here Now.
3: Like Nirvana, at the time of In Utero, Oasis was the biggest band in the world. There's no disputing it. 1995 96
1: was the year or the years of Oasis. Part of what we'll work through, you know, as we discuss Be Here Now, no one has a middle opinion, a, a middle ground opinion of this album. I have never spoken to anybody that said, It's okay. (laughs) You either love this album or you hate this album. And there are plenty of people out there on both extremes that are plenty happy to tell you why. I think you, you touched on something that will certainly be of interest as we, you know, kind of knife through it here is the production. And, you know, I think there are going to be certain areas and certain songs and certain sections where the unusual production of this album helped and there are going to be sections where it hurt and at what points was this majestic and magnificent which is part of what the guys even in their probably altered state at times were certainly looking for and at what points was it imposing so why don't we uh uh get into the uh the nerdy deets and we'll uh Crack the code on this one uh, as best we can.
0: You want some nerdy deets? Yeah! You want some nerdy deets?
1: You want some nerdy deets? You got them. Our nerdy deets are done dirt cheap. Nerdy deets done dirt cheap. That's what they are. Be Here Now was released in August of 1997. The project was really quite a circus from the beginning they the band started in abbey road and they essentially turned this rather prestigious you know london-based recording studio that is clearly uh, very well known by the band that probably influenced oasis and most other Britpop pop bands more than anyone else being the beatles uh they successfully turned abbey road into a basically, a um, uh, an animal house of sorts and were asked to leave. They then relocated to a house on the outskirts of London. And after a couple months, they were asked to leave there as well. So on their third try, they were able to get the, uh, proper location, which is a farm actually, so they were they they recorded be here now in three different locations mostly because the first two they were asked to leave. And you know media got involved and you know this was celebrity culture at this time as we touched on a little bit with Nirvana you know had really heightened particularly in the UK. And the Gallagher brothers really became tabloid darlings and international superstars that were really putting you know Manchester and and English music as a whole really on the map in a very very big way. I mean bands
3: bands from Manchester had already made a splash certainly in the UK and in Europe and to an extent in the US. I mean Manchester had become a a music scene you had bands like Happy Mondays Stone Roses. I mean, you had groups that represented this scene, but Oasis took it global and to levels of stardom that this kind of little Manchester scene never even set out to do. So they came from good fabric and they were influenced by a lot of good music that came out of that scene.
1: And if you're not sure of the the complete history of Oasis, the documentary that came out a few years ago is just an outstanding way to get a lot of context around Manchester and around the Gallagher's upbringing and around the whole formation of Noel being in a band and Liam being a singer and all these things that are it's it's a it's an extremely unlikely story that these brothers and and these guys that they they sort of rounded up to play with them became the biggest band in the world. I, I you know I I kind of asked the question earlier but I'm not sure that globally there has been a more anticipated album than this as the follow up to What's the Story Morning Glory which was which was just a huge deal. You know the the singles on that record you know it was one that was just universally just beloved with Wonderwall and Don't Look Back in Anger and Champagne Supernova. I mean, these were, at their time in the mid-90s, these were anthems. You might have some better ideas on that, but I'm not sure if I can think of any albums that were more anticipated or that had the level of expectations that this one did.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that Nirvana's in Utero had it. Pearl Jam Versus had some of those expectations when it came out. I think Radiohead Kid A when that came out on the heels of OK Computer was certainly something that, was, that had high expectations and, and had people really, really interested. So there's, there's a few,
2: but I don't think anything compared to the, the star power of the Gallagher brothers kind of the
3: turmoil that led up to it, the sensationalism that led up to it. It was, it was a very, very unique time and they were representing an entire country and sort of an entire continent to the rest of the music world. So it's pretty unique. I mean, you you can find some of those other examples in the nineties of albums that were anticipated, but I would say it was definitely top three in terms of most anticipated albums.
1: The history of Oasis releasing singles really has a lot to do with the assessment of this album and the B-sides collection, uh, which followed. Because, you know, when you talk about Be Here Now, you got to talk a little bit about the master plan, which came out a year later. It was a collection of B-sides, which Again, back then things were different. If in the US, we couldn't easily get Oasis B-sides. You had to basically get an import CD single, which were difficult to get. You had to go to the record store and order them and it would take a couple weeks for it to arrive and you paid a bunch of money for them. It was it was very different than it is now where you can go online and download whatever songs you want. And Oasis had a knack for doing that, particularly on the Definitely Maybe and What's the Story Morning Glory periods of time. They were releasing a lot of CD singles with B-sides that if you were in America, you had a really a pretty hard time hearing. So the Master Plan was a collection that was released um about a year after Be Here Now. And a lot of people said The be here now haters said that they thought the master plan was better, and really spent a lot of time wondering why Noel sat on so much of that material and sent so many of those songs into, you know, the B sides catalog rather than holding them for that album or recording them for that album.
3: Noel had a tremendous ego when it came to B sides. He repeatedly said that he wanted B-sides to be as good a, as if not better than some of the singles that came from the album. So there was a lot of intention for him to hold back clearly some of his best songs to serve as B-sides. So some of it was just good old-fashioned ego and wanting to kind of set a tone with his songwriting that hey, look at my B-sides, they're as good as my A-sides. They they were heavily involved in kind of the singles wars. Of the mid to late 90s, particularly in Britain uh, with bands like Blur and some of the other bands, they were judged on how many singles they sold. Th- this was a different time where you charted singles just as much as you charted albums. And there was a tremendous amount of pride for selling a lot of copies of a single, and B-sides were part of that. And that's where Noel was really smart. You know, over time, he proved to fans and consumers that Oasis B-sides were valuable and therefore you wanted to buy these. And that's why Oasis always did really well with selling singles and singles were a huge money maker for bands just like albums are. But that was a huge part of it was this you know the record companies in in Europe and specifically in the UK marketed the heck out of singles for consumers. You know, America had already gone past that a little bit. You know, the cassette single in America didn't really take off. And the CD single was a little bit more of a novelty item. But overseas, it was a much more desirable item. And to have the top selling single was a huge bragging point in the UK charts.
1: Yeah. And certainly, you know, Noel was smart about that. And boy, they had some amazing B-sides. But he would later say that Be Here Now, he considered it a missed opportunity for leaving off so many songs that would have been great additions to the album and instead choosing to use them as B-Sides sooner. You know, I think he, he certainly has made, you know, he's not hidden the fact that he feels he could have sat on some of that material and used it for be here now to his point, acquiesce half the world away Good to be free, going nowhere, talk tonight. I mean, these these became OASIS classics and huge parts of their live sets, particularly when they would play in Europe. So it's a it's a very interesting thing to assess because yeah, he likes to hack on the album, and yeah, he likes to, you know, say, boy, I should have taken some of that material and put it on Be Here Now. But I'll tell you what, for those For those of us that really liked Be Here Now, getting the master plan a year later was just kind of cherry on top. I remember you had a few of the import CDs because you were a huge Oasis fan. You were kind of you were kind of at that party uh, well before I was.
3: I had both singles box sets and I was lucky to find a book. I remember I I bought one of them at Tower Records. But yeah, there's some amazing material on those singles. The master plan, the song itself. Is, is a favorite of many Oasis fans, and understandably so. And it would have sounded pretty damn good on Be Here Now. Let's get to Wonder Stories. stories.
0: to hear your,
1: to hear your You were definitely, you jumped on this band early, so I'm I'm interested first and foremost in your adoption and understanding of oasis you know when and where and how did you become familiar and connected with this band
3: yeah it was it was a little later than one might think definitely maybe came out i wasn't that into the album i bought it enjoyed it i thought live forever was a great single some of the album tracks like slide away were songs that i really liked but it was an album that i that i liked but didn't love when What's the Story of Morning Glory came out, that was the point where it really connected. And I think it's because of the just the atmosphere and the space of the album. During this time, you and I were both huge fans of, of the Verve, that kind of spacey, really atmospheric British rock was was something that was really powerful at the time. I felt like What's a Story Morning Glory really captured that. Champagne Supernova was the song that really hooked me in terms of that atmosphere, just that confidence and that swagger. But but again, that, that space rock kind of atmosphere of what Oasis was doing at the time. What really got me was seeing some live clips of them on their first US tour for What's a Story Morning Glory. They were selling out arenas, you know, Liam with that iconic pose with his hands behind his back and just singing. You know, one of the most underrated things about Oasis is Liam Gallagher's voice. I mean, it's just such a distinct voice that, you know, those who love it, really love it. Noel playing, you know, his British flag, hollow body guitar, just the sheer power of Oasis live.
1: Once you first saw it. It was a big deal back then. Particularly in nineteen in the mid '90s, it was a really big deal that a band would play live and just stand there and play. I remember one of the first things I heard about this band. It was you're not going to believe it. This band, when they play live, they just stand there. They don't move.
0: Yeah,
3: and and that's exactly what I mean. It's a great point. What I mean by atmosphere, they they just had such an aura about them. They had so much confidence. And their stage presence, you know, people criticize them for it. To your point, I
1: thought it was the coolest thing ever. You know? I actually don't think anybody criticized. I just think it was so unusual. I actually think people thought it was really cool because at that time, you know, it was kind of post grunge and you had so many people on stage running around and, you know, showboating and eagle ramps and all these things that were cool and were part of the time period and part of the attitude. but it was just so unusual to have a band particularly of a bunch of young guys just have that to your point that moxie and that confidence to be able to just literally stand in the same spot the whole show and it was just i just remember people thinking that was so interesting and so unusual at the time
3: you know and think about it you're in the mid 90s compare it to the preceding you know guns and roses and And Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and like bands that like, you know, flew around the stage and swung around their shirts and all that. I mean, Oasis did none of that. Make no mistake, Liam Gallagher had a tremendous amount of swagger to him, but it was in a completely unique way. Certainly unique to anything that that most Americans had seen. So I I was all in and and continued to be. I think that you know it's really important there's Oasis fans that kinda cut out at nineteen ninety-six. There's Oasis fans that dropped out after Be Here Now and after what is perceived as a failure or disappointment. And then there's many Oasis fans that couldn't even name for you the last three albums that the band put out. Uh, I followed them closely right up until the end and loved pretty much every album they did and continued to be just as intrigued with the band as I was when I first really heard them in 1994, so really important band to me. I've been a, a top ten band for you know a very very long time, and and will continue to be a, a top ten band. And I just hope one day the uh, Gallagher's will rise again. We'll see what happens.
1: Well, in its tenth year, by its tenth year, the album had sold eight million copies. So you know, for a quote unquote failure. Um, It's still an album that uh, certainly moved tremendously well, even though it may have caused some controversy by some. You know, my story with Oasis is, um, you know, I'd first heard of them pretty shortly after Definitely Maybe came out. There was a a really cool girl in high school who liked really cool music. She was two years older and it always seemed to kind of you know, there are those people back then that were just always, you know, always knew who the next big band was going to be. And I remember we were at a, a retreat early on. Uh, I would have been a freshman in high school and they were listening to somebody and they were telling me about how it was this band Oasis and they were these British guys and that they were going to be huge. I didn't think much of it. I, I, I thought Live Forever was a great single. I, I think I like that song more now. Than I even appreciated it at the time. It's really a a fabulous song. What's the story? Morning glory was was good. I wasn't diehard over it. Thought there were a couple pretty good songs. Um, be here now. Obviously, we'll dig into today. The oasis thing really clicked for me in the year two thousand. I was spending a summer studying in France, and I happened to a friend and I happened to hop the, uh, channel and head over to London for a long weekend. And it happened to be the weekend that Oasis was playing Wembley. And I spent what at the time was an obnoxious amount of money, um, scalping a ticket. And I, by myself, I went in and and saw Oasis on the standing on the shoulder of giants tour play Wembley stadium, which was really, really cool. And actually that was probably where I really got in. It it was, so it was kind of a late bloomer deal for me and standing on the shoulder of giants, which was the follow up to be here now is I, I think it's just an awesome album. And they came out and played a lot of that material on that tour and the band was on, they, you know, they had kind of regrouped and obviously, I mean, it was Wembley stadium. How cool is that? So that's one of my great memories. Obviously, you and I collectively have seen this band several times. And I think one of the interesting things about the live presentation, because you knew what you'd get from Noel and you'd know what you'd get from Liam. But you know, to me, the challenges with, with the drummers, or certainly their original couple of drummers, Alan White was, was playing drums at the time of Be Here Now. I think was always a big challenge for them in really maximizing what they could be live. And I remember seeing a couple of bad Oasis Oasis shows and a lot of that had to do with the drumming. I mean, Noel talked about the be here now sessions where, you know, Alan White was having trouble playing to click tracks and, and having trouble keeping tempo and things that just a band of that magnitude, you wouldn't think that they, they had that problem. Uh, we did see them, I remember when they got Zach Starkey, you know ringo's son, and he he's a terrific drummer and um actually sounded real that was that was some of the best um i'd ever heard the band sound uh with him on the drums you know the live he, he was a great fit
3: for them, no doubt about yeah. it yeah
1: and and you can uh, either confirm or deny uh as as the drummer of the duo here, you know kind of where i'm going with this, but I really think that that was an area that they kind of had a hard time cracking the code on and at times it affected their live presentation to the negative
3: i don't think noel to to his musical brilliance which is obvious i I, he wouldn't know a good drummer if it hit him over the head with a stick that's part of the issue is i'm not sure he really even knows like what a good drummer means for oasis because i remember a quote he gave once where he said like alan white was the best drummer he ever worked with and it's like how many have you worked with you know so I've seen Oasis with, with a few different drummers. Saw them with Alan White in between Be Here Now and Standing on the Shoulder of Giants. I saw them with Zach Starkey. He was great. And then I saw them uh, on their last couple tours. But the best drummer I saw them with, and to your point, the best show that they played, and I believe it's because of the fantastic drumming, was with Steve White, Alan's brother, on the tour ah, of yes. Brotherly Love. Yes. This was in 2000 on the Standing on the Shoulder of Giants tour. They did a summer run with the Black Crows. Alan White had broke his wrist and was unable to tour with them, so they went and got Alan's brother, Steve, who is already a pretty well-established drummer, And he just ripped. And I remember just thinking like, oh, keep him in the band. You know, it it was such an amazing show. But yeah, there's no doubt that live they've kind of gone as their drummers have gone, particularly when they really upgraded the band to include Gem Archer on guitar and Andy Bell from Ride on bass. That's a really high quality band.
1: Yeah, you know, the studio can obviously fix a lot of drummer challenges.
2: And certainly there were many reasons beyond just the drumming where this album became polarizing, but I'm curious as we kind of wrap up the section here,
1: was there a more polarizing album certainly of this time, but I'll I'll even take it further in the history of rock. You know, there have been some albums that have certainly had healthy debate and have had some differing viewpoints and some extreme viewpoints and that sort of thing. But in your view, could this be talked about as one of the most polarizing albums in the history of rock? I mean, is that fair?
3: I actually think the more appropriate word is misunderstood. I It's I don't think it's all that polarizing because I honestly think most people you'd ask would say they didn't like it. And you've got the, the main songwriter out for the last decade plus saying he doesn't like it. And so I don't see the, this album from a public perspective. I don't see it as much polarizing as much as just completely misunderstood. I've never understood the backlash against this album I've never, never understood why it's not held up as one of the best albums of the 1990s. I think it captures everything good about Oasis and certainly everything that was you know sparkling about Oasis during this time. So polarizing to an extent, I think it's just
1: much more misunderstood. But there are still plenty of people that love this album, Nubs. I mean, the Oasis fans in particular... I think you're going to find that to be more split than you're giving it credit for. I mean, there are a lot of people that are very fond of this album, very fond of the songwriting, and can put some of the production critique aside to just realize what it signifies for the band in that moment. So, I mean, there are plenty of people that still thought very highly of this album with these, in many cases, conflicting opinions. Are there albums of that time or rock albums that you can think of that have that same level of, of controversy and polarization and opinion? I mean, I can't think of many that are even in the same ballpark. There's definitely a few. A
3: couple that come to mind earlier, we mentioned that Radiohead Kid A is an album that, that drew a firm line of division between those who liked the band for one reason and those who liked the band for another reason, and I think that Radiohead made that album to favor those who like the band for the long
1: term. Uh, I can't stand Kid A. I think I don't like it either. No. <laughs> I, in fact, it's funny. I a couple. It was just a couple of weeks ago. wasn't that long ago. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna give this a try. I mean, what did I miss? Which, which has happened plenty of times, you know, where you pop in an album and it's like. All right, I'm going to get to the bottom of this because I must have just missed something. I, haven't, I hadn't heard it in years. I got top to bottom through it and I felt the exact same damn way that I did when it first came out, which is, I just don't get the hype and the response and the uh, acclaim uh, for that particular one.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I've, I've never liked that album. I've, I've always seen it as a huge disappointment. I remember buying it the day it came out and taking it back to my apartment in college and I must have listened to it three times top to bottom, and I was much more confused after listening to it than anything else. It was just like, and I understood what they were doing. It's clear from an avant-garde and experimental perspective, the statement they're trying to make, but it, it's, it's just not very good. you know. And when you compare it to what came before it with OK Computer you know, you can see. So that's a truly polarizing album. I mean, there are are some people who think Kid A was revolutionary. And, you know, I I certainly don't see that. Uh, I I think a couple are, Weezer Pinkerton was an album. Now, granted, that was their second album. Yeah, That was one that came out and really kind of said, hey, those of you that loved the kind of of commercial aspect of the blue album, uh, here's something that you might not like as much, but we sure like it. And then the other one that, that came to mind when you asked that question is Sane Anger by Metallica, hmm. which was the album that came out and had that like pots and pans kind of drum sound and was completely polarizing. And Metallica fans like completely flipped, you know,
1: I love Sane Anger.
3: I love Sinegar, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. and you, you just have to listen to it and, and focus on the composition and and understand kind of the statement they were making with some of the production elements.
1: Let's uh, let's put the needle on the record here and and uh, talk about some of these indulgent, long Oasis songs on "Be Here Now."
2: When the beats go like
1: this this might be the only album episode where we actually we're actually going to provide the track time for each because I do think it's part of the story of the way this band, not just in a production sense and not just in
2: a layering sense, but some of these songs are just too long. And I think it's a it's a trend within the album. You could have easily taken, you know, not 30 seconds, but like three minutes off of some of these
1: songs, and it actually would have made it better. The first track clocks in at 7 minutes 45,
2: which by the standards of this album, you know, is kind of average. But I do think part of the story is... Some
1: of the indulgence of song length, and that becomes evident in track one. Do you know what I mean? Right here, right now. now, this was released about a month before the album. In fact, I remember. Well before Be Here Now came out, seeing this video, it was kind of one of those MTV premiere deals. It was a super successful uh, single at the time, um, both in the UK and in the US. Certainly a very anticipated single, but it was a, I mean, it was a great way to kick this album off. I think people got even more excited when they heard, "Do you know what I mean?" Cause it did sound a little different and it did sound like something that wouldn't have been on definitely maybe, or on what's the story morning glory. It's a really, really good single. And it got people, I think even more hyped up about the album than they probably already were.
3: This song is just, it's so glorious in the true sense of the word. Do you know what I mean? Is my favorite all time Oasis song far and away the video When it came out, the first time I heard the song was the world premiere of the video. And that video was just so magnificent. It's a terrific song. The guitar work is is so huge. Kind of the solo that happens halfway through the song and, and the outro guitars and just the composition of it. But again, atmosphere it's all atmosphere. And if you didn't understand atmosphere at the time, then I, do you know what I mean? And many other Oasis songs on this album are going to feel too long. But if you allowed yourself to kind of get lost in some of the the more psychedelic elements of it, and some of this album is very psychedelic. It's it's really tapping into kind of that Sgt. Pepper idea of music, where music is not just a few tracks of instruments. You're You're doing a lot of things with layering and and kind of sonic abilities by putting a lot of instruments on top of one another, it just creates this huge sound, you know, like most Oasis songs. I think Noel could sing this on his own with an acoustic guitar and, and I would love it. But the way that this one is produced with so much kind of rock glory, I just think it's an absolutely memorable and, and, completely powerful song you know i was all in from the first few seconds
1: of it it is it's very majestic i i've never listened to this song and at the end said that i think it's too long you know i think this is one that you know they, they make it count and noel's voice i mean certainly coming off of don't look back in anger which was such a huge single off of the previous record You know, Noel certainly developed a lot more confidence, I think, in his voice, not just singing lead, but also singing harmonies. One of the most underrated, unheralded things about Oasis is the blending of Noel and Liam's voice. I mean, it's special. The blend is just as good live as it is in studio. And I think, do you know what I mean? In the choruses, Noel's voice is very, very important. You know, the, my only gripe about this one would be probably something you could pick at for the remainder of the album. And it's just that there's so much guitar. I think on this one, there's like 35 guitar tracks on a normal studio album for a rock band. There's probably three or four. I mean, it is an absolutely absurd amount of guitar tracks, which does create some clipping and did create some noise. But on a song this good, and I think this is part of, at least for me, I think part of the theme of this record is it shows that if you got good enough songs, it can overcome some of the imperfections of production or of instrumentation or of whatever it may be. And do you know what I mean? It's just an absolutely outstanding song that was able to overcome whatever you know production faults it may have had. I just saw this as an
3: extension of the Verve and some of the other kind of noisy, spacey things that were coming out of Britain at this time. I didn't have a huge differentiation between the Verve and and Radiohead and, and Oasis. You know, I thought they were all able to experiment in ways that a lot of American bands couldn't do. And all of those guitar layers to me just created a really kind of psychedelic wash that was really appealing. You know, you don't listen to Oasis for the drums, as we talked about earlier. So the fact that the drums are washed out by the 35 guitar tracks,
1: to me, is okay. That being said, 35 guitars, yeah, pretty ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, are you getting the impression that we might have a hard time tonight getting Nubs to say anything bad about Be Here Now? Oh, there'll they'll be, they'll be some critiques. <laughs> there will be. There will be. Track to My Big Mouth. Just a blazing intro, um, which gets you into a very, um, upbeat song for Oasis in a, in a definite track two rocker. It's a great vocal by Liam and the, you know, one of the better pre-chorus sections, I think, which really there's some great pre-chorus sections on this record. And my big mouth is one of the better, but this one always sticks out for me just in its driving nature, good sections. This is the moment in a lot of cases for pretty much everybody who had this album, this was the first true new song that they were listening to. And to come out and kind of hit you over the head like that, I think is really interesting. Now, it's very loud. This, this song clips, it, it is, you got a lot of guitars, you got a lot of noise, but there's some very creative elements in there, particularly vocally, that I quite like as a track two. And, and not a track two where I think they knew this probably wasn't going to be a hit. But it certainly sets the tone for Be Here Now, coming off of the first song, which was a huge single quite nicely.
3: Just excellent pre chorus, great chorus, which really make up for kind of a little more lackluster verses. It's amazing how few times in their career Oasis goes up tempo. You know, most of what they do is very mid tempo, a lot of stuff that's slow, a lot of stuff that sets that atmosphere it's not as common as people might think for a rock and roll band of quote unquote rock and roll stars to go kind of full throttle up-tempo rock. And really my big mouth is really the only time on the album that does it.
1: I see what you did there, by the way, rock and roll star Oasis. You I like read- that? I read you. I read you. Hey, you know,
3: tonight I'm a rock and roll star. And you know what? I don't even like rock and roll star. To
1: be honest, I don't really like that one either. <laughs> but the question for the moment is: Do you like Magic Pie?
0: They they die, like yeah, um.
1: Obviously, a Noel song, very trippy, very Beatles. This one clocks in at seven minutes, 10.
2: I think it could be two minutes less, Um, particularly the ending, which is atmospheric and cool and jammy,
1: but I don't think it needs to be that long. Noel, as a lyricist, and we talked about it a little bit in, in episode two with Phil Collins. I just think an incredibly underrated lyricist both in wordplay and in, I mean, some of these lyrics are just very tender and very sweet and, and at times personal, almost to the point where you're like, that guy wrote this, the, the Noel Gallagher, him, you know, just things that you, you, you're you shocked to hear him say, but I loved. So when we talked about Kurt Cobain, we talked about how I love the wordplay and kind of check out when he gets real personal. I think Noel Gallagher is the complete opposite. Sometimes his wordplay is just too blatant Beatles ripoff. But when he writes those tender personal lyrics where, you know, you got to read it five times and you're still shocked that Noel Gallagher wrote that it's, it's part of the fascination with him as one of the best songwriters of our time, no question. He's, he's sort of deceptively
3: romantic. He's yeah. A, he's yeah. very romantic. He, he, uh, and I'm not just talking about girl guy things, right? Like he's yeah. he has a romantic view of the world. And his phraseology and his lyrics oftentimes takes a romantic turn when you would least expect it. But when you learn more about the brothers, I mean, it, it doesn't take long to figure out that at the party, you know, Liam is the guy standing on the table doing shots of Jaegermeister. Noel is sitting in the corner observing. They're very different. My favorite line in the, in the Oasis documentary is somebody describes them as saying that Noel's got a lot of buttons and Liam has a lot of fingers. It's like a perfect description of them. Mm-hmm. And, and Noel clearly got the gift of observation which most great songwriters have both from a musical perspective and certainly from a lyrical perspective and he adopted a much more introspective and romantic view of the world and of life while liam clearly kind of has the more simplified life's a party you know i'm a rock and roll star sort of idea
1: I know exactly what you mean. I mean, you know, you and I would be at parties and you would be like doing keg stands and standing, jumping on tables and and I would be kind of, you know, huddled in the corner, just sort of keeping to myself and, and really observing. So I, I know exactly what you mean as far as that dynamic for those two guys (laughs) as brothers. Um, you know, it was funny when we were, I was watching the Oasis documentary with somebody
3: when that line happened about the, the fingers and the buttons, this person leaned over to me and said, wow, that's you and Toph. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. Just, just, just for people out there who don't know us, trust me,
1: I'm the one with the buttons. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably fair. You know, again, I, I know I don't want to sound like a broken record. There's just so much guitar on this song. There, there's, there's like a guitar solo happening throughout the entire song, the intro, the verses, the choruses, and it's, you know, some of it's nice and layered and atmospheric, and and boy, some of it, I, I almost feel like it's such a cool song that it could be an organ and a set of drums and Noel's voice, and it would be a really cool tune. So. You know, maybe a little bit embellished from a layering standpoint and a guitar standpoint. the one thing that I think the tambourine sticks out in this song quite a bit because you've got so many different noisy elements between the organ and the guitars, and it kinda liam playing the tambourine always kinda made me laugh um you know on stage, and it's just so funny sometimes to kinda like. You know, he kind of would just play it whenever he felt like it. He'd kind of do it for a couple a couple bars, then he'd just stop. You know, sometimes he was on beat, sometimes he was off beat. But it was always kind of funny to see, the, you know, just this hot shot swagger, you know, walking around the stage with that tambourine in his hand. I don't know. There's always something kind of funny to that about that to me.
3: I'm not thoroughly convinced he ever really knew how to play it. I am quite sure on this album that that's Owen Morris and Noel Gallagher playing the tambourine parts because they're actually
1: on beat. Noel was always a little bit easy to pick on in his guitar playing. He's not a particularly natural guitar player. He's not a great rhythm guitar player, and his lead guitar playing is is fairly limited. You know, you're often hearing kind of a lot of the same old box licks and and box moves and some of those things that are, you know, fairly basic. And I honestly, part of me wonders if... You know, he got sick of hearing about how not very good of a guitar player he was. And he decided to embellish some of these, I mean, solos over choruses and solos over verses and doodles in places where it's not even a building layer. It just kind of is, is present throughout. I mean, part of me kind of wonders if he was trying to show everybody that he could play some lead licks and ended up kind of overdoing it a bit. But who knows? certainly didn't uh leave any uh
3: riffs or guitar lines on the table everything is everything's there you know from beginning to end well speaking of layers this
1: one's got some great ones stand by me So it's almost, um, it's kind of part one of the be here now ballads, um, coupled with don't go away. You know, I think, um, I think one of them is really outstanding from a musicality standpoint. And one of them is really outstanding from a melody, you know, vocal melody standpoint. And I think stand by me is just all about incredible music you could listen to this instrumentally and it would just be an absolutely gorgeous song. Um, I think they did a good job of applying the right vocal treatment to not step too much on the musicality and the, and the chord progressions and the strings. And I mean, it's a, it's a really, really gorgeous song. Again, there's constant guitar, but on this one, you know, there are enough other things going on where I think you're, you know, kind of able to focus on the the lushness of the melody and the strings, and I mean, I just I think it's a beautiful track.
3: The orchestrations are definitely a high point on here. I, I I've always felt like this would have been a better song with Noel on lead vocals. Hmm. Uh, I think it would have captured a little bit more of the the kind of the humble aspect of the song. I think that Liam's more bombastic vocal style takes away from that feel a little bit and creates something that's a little bit more arena rockish whereas noel's vocal was always you know, just a little more human just a little more tangible and would have brought out something in the song that's just a little more meek uh, but it 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 was i think it was placed nicely in the album i think it's a very very well sequenced album it's one of the things i really love about it i think that you you know if if the best album sequencer in the universe was given these songs and asked to put them in the correct order they would not have done any better than what is here and so it's it's a kind of a perfect track four for this album but i i would have loved to hear what it would have been with noel on lead vocals and and i'll rarely say that about oasis but this song, I think it would have been a better song with Noel singing
1: it. Well, you get a taste for that. I believe this was part of the MTV unplugged set where Liam had a quote unquote uh, cough or cold or whatever he claimed he had. And, um, and Noel ended up performing the entire show by himself, singing every song. And then suddenly Liam showed up halfway through the show in the balcony you know, with a bottle of whiskey and was, you know, heckling his brother from from the cheap seats, uh, which was just another classic Oasis moment. But I think Noel gave you that lead vocal on um, Stand By Me if that was part of the set. But it was always interesting to hear Noel's lead vocal takes on some of the Liam songs. And and, and in many cases, uh, it did work extremely well this was the second single released uh, on be here. Now it, it got to number two uh, and had absolutely no chance whatsoever of getting to number one. Do you know, do you remember why would you like to reckon as to why? See,
3: 1997. Oh, it, it, I, I'm sure it was because of the candle in the wind thing.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly
3: right. So, so I'll tell you the only reason I
2: remember that, is because i was working at a record store during this time and when that candle in the wind single came out i mean it was the
3: most unbelievable thing i'd ever seen and the only thing that topped it was the following year i was working at a record shop and it was the year that titanic was released on vhs those were the two things that I have just never seen anything like it just from a cultural perspective on people coming in the store to buy it. So that's the only reason I remember that.
1: Well, you're absolutely correct. The uh, 10 days after be here now was released. Uh, Diana princess of Wales was tragically and shockingly killed in a car accident, uh, in Paris for being chased by tabloid media and paparazzi. Uh, and and you're exactly right. Elton John with the uh, Goodbye England's Rose version of uh, Candle in the Wind, uh, that was number one in the UK for a very long time, appropriately so. But Stand By Me did make it to number two uh, at that time. I hope, I think, I know. This is definitely one of my favorite songs on the album, one of my favorite Oasis songs ever. It's just a, a it's a simple song, but one that I think just combines melody with chord changes. It's got a great middle section. I just think it's a very quintessential Oasis song. I love it. And again, I think it's a song that you wouldn't have heard on the previous two albums, but it was an absolutely perfect fit for be here now and in this track 5 position
2: i have this kind of metric for how good of a of a song a rock song is if dolly parton did a cover of it or if willie nelson did a cover of it would it still
3: be great and i hope i think i know is an example of a song
2: that is just so perfectly written if Dolly Parton did it, it sound great. If Willie what's Nelson did it, it would sound great.
1: What's wrong with, with Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson? I mean, are you, are, you, are you saying if even they can make it sound good? I mean, what's your, what's your deal with those two?
3: No, not at all. Love Dolly, love Willie, but...
1: Well, I should say you do.
3: <laughs> their music is, is solely based on how well a song is written both of their, both of the genre that they're both famous for is not known for big production and high energy. It's known for, you know, kind of the hooks and the basic songwriting that goes into something. And so in their styles, you know, if they're able to cover a song and have it sound great, that's a good sign, you know? And so it has much more to do with their genres than them. You know, I mean, could just think about it. Could you imagine Dolly singing this song and having it be really
2: enjoyable? I could. You know? I've never, I've never really considered this, this assessment before. I think it's, uh, I think you're onto something. So listen,
1: everybody out there, this is the nubs. You heard it here first. The nubs formula for a good rock song is if Dolly and Willie can pull it off. It must be a good song.
3: It's the Dolly Willy theory.
1: Come on, man. It's going to the go. Dolly Willie theory. Well, could Dolly Parton have pulled off the girl in the dirty shirt? Oasis had this incredible knack for taking songs that really aren't that bad and making them look super bad based on what they're up against on the remainder of the record. You look at like She's Electric and, you know, there there are there are other examples on Oasis albums where sometimes these songs just get completely panned. And it's really interesting. I, You know, Girl in the Dirty Shirt is a song that if this song was on Definitely Maybe, it probably would have been a hit. Or if like Blur wrote this song, it'd probably be on MTV. I mean, it sometimes Noel could be his own worst enemy in having such a gift for melody and songs that become so anthemic that when you hear a song like this, it becomes super easy to pick on. But this is not a bad song.
3: Noel, is the, he's the master of the pre-chorus. If you think about it, it's always been, in his songwriting, it's always been kind of the essential thing. It's just these dynamic, memorable, emotional pre-choruses. I remember one time you described Dave Matthews' band. You gave a great assessment of Dave Matthews' songwriting. You said that within his songs, you can always find a section that you like. And whether that's the verse or the chorus or the pre chorus or the bridge or the outro or the intro or whatever, there's just always something in Dave Matthews' songs that you can find that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. I I agree. I think the same thing is true with Noel, but I think most of the time it's the pre chorus. And Girl in the Dirty Shirt is a great example of kind of a like okay verse, kind of a eh, chorus, but a great pre chorus. I mean, a pre chorus that really captures the. The emotion and the mood of the song. It's sung very, very well by Liam. Do I think this measures up with some of the other real highlights of songwriting on Be
1: Here Now? No. But got a killer pre-chorus and that can go a long way. And a cool organ part. I mean that yeah. there you know, particularly at the end, I mean it's I mean, listen, it, it ain't Billy Preston or anything, but at least it's not a guitar and it's a really cool layer. There are some really good organ and key and certainly string layers uh throughout this album and and certainly on this song and then out of nowhere liam kind of takes us into the the wild west uh at least you know manchester england style with fade and out
3: And who is playing those slide guitar
2: parts on Fade Out? I don't know. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp? Like the actor? Yes, sir. Oh. When the album first came out, that was kind of
3: a big deal that Johnny Depp was a guest musician. I remember at this time, Johnny Depp was like most actors. He was like, you know, wanting really secretly to be a, a rock star. And there was this sort of intrigue on, oh, I wonder what song or part Johnny Depp plays on. And he plays all those sly like, guitar parts on Fading Out.
1: Yeah, Noel was like buddy wasn't he buddies with Kate Moss and Johnny Depp. In he fact, was. I I think he he those three went to some island, and it was there that Noel wrote a lot of these songs for be here now if i'm not mistaken but yeah noel kind of like to like to roll celebrity you know in his uh in his downtime apparently you know i think the cool thing about this song is you can't have a a track like this on 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 an on this album and say this is the same old oasis oasis sometimes got a bad rap for you know using similar chords and you know, a lot of similar progressions and, and a lot of similar styles. Faded out to me is the band branching out a bit. And and this, I mean, this is a different style. Slide guitar feels a little wanted, dead, or alive. I mean, it's got this really cool kind of haunting cadence to it and a, a very unique style compared to anything they had done before. And, you know, it clocks in at six minutes fifty. Perhaps it could be argued, perhaps, that it Could have been a bit shorter, Um, but I think it's a great song uh, for the middle of this album and kind of, you know, setting up how it kind of takes you home. Uh, Beginning with uh, part two, I would call it of the Be Here Now Ballads and Don't Go Away. You put it perfectly earlier, right? You said unexpectedly romantic? Deceptively romantic. Ah, deceptively romantic. And I think that's, that's, all, that's all Noel here on Don't Go Away. Um, this, this romantic side to, to Noel, I think, is truly what differentiated them from other, particularly Britpop acts, that in some cases were good but would have never written a song like this. Would have never written a song like Don't Look Back in Anger. Would have never written a song like Wonderwall. Would have never written a song like Live Forever. In a lot of ways, it it was the band at their best. I just, I absolutely adore this song. I actually think it's a perfect song. The verses, the pre-choruses, the chorus, the outro is just unbelievably gorgeous. I think it's a perfect song. And it was interesting, it was a much more popular song in america than it was in the uk which is very unusual um, for this band and you actually don't see them playing it live a lot for that reason but i would designate this song as fairly perfect noel has
3: a pretty extraordinary history of what one would call ballads songs that could be considered slower and romantic songs you look at Something like slide away, and definitely maybe. Yeah. On what's the story of Morning Glory? There's a few different examples. Don't look back in anger, maybe being the you know the the most obvious of them, but cast no shadow is a great example. Mm-hmm. After be here now, uh, you you know you had where did it all go wrong? On standing on the shoulder, and you had what I think is the best of them all, which is stop crying your heart out from heathen chemistry but really it's just it's just tremendous songwriting it's it's thoughtful verses and choruses that merge together just perfectly it's lyrics that can connect with a mass amount of listeners but also there's a lot of room for interesting interpretations and, and it just continues to reveal his range and i think by the end of be here now that's really where most True fans of the band were at. It's just his range was on full display. You would find this song in many Oasis fans' top five lists. And I'm guessing it's firmly placed in both of ours.
1: Well, why don't we do that right now? Just we'll, we'll take a quick pause. It's very difficult to come up with a top five on Oasis, but do you have a top five on them? My top five
3: for Oasis is pretty easy to dig up. So five would be Don't Go Away. Four is slide away from definitely maybe. Three is stop crying your heart out. Two is gas panic from standing on the shoulder of giants. And one,
1: as previously mentioned, is do you know what I mean? What's yours? Uh, We match on gas panic. We match on don't go away. And then my remaining three are acquiesce, which is also a B-side. Great (laughs) B-side. Little by Little, which was off Heed Chemistry. That's a Noel song. That was not a hit, but certainly top five for me.
3: I know a lot of people that would agree with you on Little by Little. There'll be people listening to this that are going to be upset that it wasn't in my list. And the
1: fifth one is Live Forever.
3: Live Forever where sort of where it all began. So that's a good list. Very good list.
1: As is yours, my good man. And hopefully there's a bunch of people
3: right now running off to their respective place of
1: purchasing music and buying this gas panic song by Oasis. It, you know, that was on, that's on standing on the shoulder of giants. And I remember the Wembley show. Cause I I hadn't really heard that record and that's kind of buried a little bit deeper on the album. I was just like, they, I don't want to get too romantic here. Like the, the sun was coming down, the, the stadium was getting dark and i had kind of gotten my way up pretty far i was probably about an equivalent of like 20 rows on on the main floor because i was there by myself and they played this new song and i was just like what the hell is that that is great and it was it was gas panic so um, it's a huge live song yeah that's that's a beauty title track So I it's kind of a dumb song. I mean, but again, the rest of the album kind of makes it look bad. It's not really bad. And a lot of fans really like Be Here Now, the song. If I wrote that song, I'd be I'd be kind of like, "Okay, that's that's usable." You know? So again, I think it falls into oftentimes of this, you know, trap of comparison, but uh but not my favorite. It suffers from one of the worst samples of all time.
3: And I'm using the word sample. I'm just not really sure what it is, but whatever's creating that, you know, that they start with. The problem is they, they let that play and loop through the whole song. And it's just like incredibly distracting. You know, it distracts you from every aspect of the melody. I can even roll with that. <sad singing> i mean and I, is that whistle or like i, I don't know. know i don't know what classic be here now fashion is probably 42 tracks that are producing that melody but i can i can easily roll even with that little melody because it's kind of a interesting thing to do on top of these you know blaring guitars but it's that kind of sample keyboard thing that's that's ringing through the whole thing that just really becomes incredibly distracting. I, I'm sure this song was really powerful live. I believe they started the Be Here Now tour with this song as the first song of the night. And you could see
1: I'd probably be a pretty good opener on that tour. They liked doing that. They liked sometimes coming out with a song that would kind of ease you into it. And part of that was probably for crowd control more than anything. I remember a few times they came out and played acquiesce first and people just went ballistic, particularly in Europe. There were some songs, you know, like shaker maker and be here now and Columbia, you know, songs that really didn't impress you that much in, in the studio versions, but they get up there and play them live. And they, they were actually pretty good, pretty impactful in a live setting clocking in at nine minutes and 19 seconds. What I would consider the true epilogue of Be Here Now, all around the world.
0: These are crazy days, but they make me
1: It's a very British, very anthemic. I'm sure it's a great song live. I never saw him play it, but it just goes on. It's a long time for a song that really doesn't have a significant amount of sections or changes or complexity. So I get it. I like it. But I think all around the world is very symbolic of the indulgence of be here now. It's the one moment on the album where I can
3: sort of understand by those who hate this album or at least those who criticize the album, where they're coming from. I mean, I don't know whether it's the big standing on top of the mountain chorus or the sort of relatively unnecessary 35 piece orchestra, the completely ridiculous reprise that they do of the song (laughs) to end the album. You kind of put all that together. And at this point it's like, okay, I kind of see what they're talking about. And it's a pretty quality example of how one song can create sort of a brand of an album for some people. I mean, I'm thoroughly convinced that most people that hate Be Here Now hate it because of all around the world. It's a beloved song in a lot of ways, but it really does represent kind of all the things that were happening in the Oasis camp at this point that maybe weren't so good. and. As as much patience as those who love be here now, you know some of those moments that that maybe went a little bit too long here and there. I I, I have found myself through the years
1: sort of not being able to stomach all nine minutes and twenty seconds of this one. It's kind of too bad. I mean, it what we should be sitting here talking about is how great of a closer that is to a very bold aggressive album. And instead, you know, we're kind of sitting here going, yeah, (laughs) you know. And, and I do think to your point, when people think about this record
2: and they think about the indulgence of it, oftentimes this is probably the track that shows it. So good song, too long, but important. I think it's important to really summarizing what this record in many ways was all about. And then we somehow, Somehow, some way, someone decided that we should throw in there, it's getting better, man.
1: Now I'm with you that um, I think that the track ordering and the flow of this album was really, really well done, you know, really, really well placed and put together. I I've never understood why this song, which is a fine song, it's, it's, you know, got a nice driving, uh, approach to it. It's, you know, bare bones get after it type Oasis, which I like, but first of all, it clocks in at seven minutes. There's no reason it needs to be that long when you actually, you know, go through the song top to bottom. And and secondly, I'm not sure if I like the placement. And I think part of why they felt the need to add the all around the world reprise was because they really took, I think, at least what they felt to be this majestic moment with all around the world, stuck this kind of rocker after it and... I suppose we're feeling uh, dissatisfied with kind of the album being properly wrapped up in a bow. So with that said, I, I'm not sure why this track wasn't placed elsewhere.
3: Yeah. Things, things get a little shaky with the sequence late. You know, I, it's interesting the way you worded your description of it because same idea, but I would word it differently. I think they put this there so they could get to the reprise of all around the world to end the album. I think they wanted to do that. I, I'm always relieved that It's Getting Better Man is, is on the album because love the song. And it gives you something else other than all around the world to bring a conclusion to the album. Of course, you got the reprise and it's like, oh, here we go again. But at least the reprise is really short. So I think it's, I think it's important that it's there because it brings a little bit of, okay, this is why I listened to Oasis particularly for those who maybe don't like all around the world as much. It brings a little sweet relief before you conclude the album.
1: And let's conclude it with the all around the world reprise. So there's your, your favorite
2: track of the whole album there. Nubs, the, uh, all around the world take two, but you know, I think, uh, it's, it's been
1: very interesting discussion. I think most listeners, they, they might have a fair idea of your viewpoint. You know, Oasis be here now. Um, did it matter? I think it
3: mattered because it, like some of the albums that we mentioned earlier from some of the other bands of this era, it was a real dividing point between those who were going to stick with this band and those who were going to jump ship. And for that, I think it's extremely important. I'm always intrigued by any band or artist who has one of those albums as part of their canon because it typically means that longevity is going to be part of it. And unfortunately, Oasis isn't around anymore for fans to appreciate. But if you like to be here now and you sort of bought in and you understood what they were doing with it, you were in for the rest of the band's career. And like I said earlier, what comes after is an extremely important part of this story. Because what comes after are you know two of the band's best albums standing on the shoulder of giants and heathen chemistry two albums that again continue to capture everything awesome about this band but be here now is that dividing line and so in that sense it's very important because it did slough off some of the fans who were maybe just in it for the image so i think it's important in the way that it put a fork in the road and if you were a true fan you followed them and you continued to follow them. And if you were not, you were done. And that created a a much more focused and loyal fan base for Oasis moving forward. So do you think this was their best record? Absolutely. I I don't think they topped it before and I don't think they topped it after, even though I do believe the two albums that came out after are pieces of work that people should really rediscover and, and are pretty overlooked in some ways but be here now will always be a a top 10 album for me and might even be higher than that.
1: Does it matter for you? It's my favorite Oasis album as well. And and I do think they followed it up really nicely with standing on the shoulder. I mean, some of the Noel songs on that are just great. And it kicks off nicely with, you know, go let it out and who feels love and very experimental. I mean, I, I, and obviously the album that preceded this is very good too. So, but if I had to pick a favorite, it would be this. And again, I think the praise of this album is is appropriate. I do think the criticism of this album is appropriate, but good songs are good songs. Now what's, what's fascinating is this album probably could have been even better. I mean, if you maybe take out... uh girl in the dirty shirt, it's getting better, man, maybe one or two others. And you insert the master plan, acquiesce, talk tonight. Wow. You you could have. And I think that's part of some of the hindsight that certain fans and hell, certain band members themselves have. But of its time, I think they met the challenge. I think they met the challenge of what was highly anticipated highly expected you know they did it their way for better or for worse it is indulgent but i think it's um in a way it's appropriately indulgent uh considering where the band was at that time considering the material that they had to work with and there are just so many special songs on this album i think it's memorable for oasis fans and also just memorable for those that We're so excited about this album and and so excited about this band uh, at one point or another. Even if their reaction was somewhat polarizing, nobody can argue with the fact that there are um, very, very important songs on this record that were executed well.
3: Noel Gallagher, you got to take a little page from your younger brother on this one and start to see this album the way Liam sees it because liam says hey man it's a top record and and when i see liam say that i am all in it's like yes like liam gets it liam understands this is a top record this is this is a magnificent album and to hear noel just continuously kind of dismiss it and pan it and Hell, even when they recently did the, the super deluxe box of it, and even during the promotion of it, Noel was so reluctant to, to talk about what was great about this album. And Liam's always been right there. So on this one, Noel, listen to your brother.
1: I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, as we get into the final cut here. So Nubs, final assessment time on Be Here Now. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it... In the for sale bin.
3: Yeah, Be Here Now for me is definitely on the turntable. It's a very regular listen. It's my favorite Oasis album, and Oasis is one of my favorite bands. So there's other elements of the Oasis catalog that would certainly fit under some of those other ratings. But for Be Here Now, without question, it is on the turntable.
1: What's yours? Be Here Now is on the turntable. Hey, we finally
3: finally get one for you on the turntable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, you know. Listen, this is a this is an album. Uh, you can introduce this band to people with this album. You can show them some of the really rocker elements, the ballad elements, the majestic elements of the band. It's not perfect, but it is certainly going to be part of not just my collection, but certainly my my listening habits. I think for many many years, and hopefully uh, a few decades uh, going forward. Well, what a fascinating album to uh, dissect and to uh, not just form an opinion on, but also uh, explain and, and in some ways defend your position on. Really enjoyed talking about it. Let's uh, quickly go through uh, what's in your head. three songs on the radar what do you got nubs as we cool down episode three here yeah just today i enjoyed a little uh,
3: pretend we're dead by l7 ah yes a jam great 90s jam. off of bricks are heavy i believe bricks are heavy that's right song you introduced me to really kind of a band you introduced me to so thank you for that uh get into a little survivor that vital signs
1: album and uh high on you mm-hmm. great song from that also love the opener of that record uh like can't hold back much. can't hold back yeah
3: that's yeah, a really good 80s album for sure yes and last would be a, a great song by the band bush which is letting the cables sleep my favorite bush song by far a little bit more of an atmospheric look from bush on
1: that one great song. what, what album was that off of is that that's late?
3: on the science of things
1: oh okay very nice. On my radar, uh it goes along with the Alan Aldman Pillow Talk show we talked about earlier. There's a Sheena Easton song called You Could Have Been With Me, which is a uh just a very powerful, very well performed ballad from the uh early, very early 80s, which probably was played on Pillow Talk a few times. The second track is from Cut Copy, another they an Australian electronic group that actually also has a new album coming out this summer this is off their album free your mind back in 2013 a track called in memory capsule um, which is certainly uh, one of my favorite you know more electronic dance beat type tracks uh, from a band i really enjoy cut copy and the third song is from haken off of a band that nubs helped get me into a band Uh, with certainly uh, plenty of prog elements. Not a great live band, but an absolutely outstanding studio band. Off their album Affinity, uh, which came out a few years ago back in 2016, the song Earthrise, which is uh, just a uh, wonderful, more stripped down for Haken, not as complicated as they often get, but a powerful rock song from a really, really skilled really, really complex, modern-day prog metal band.
3: One of my favorite songs on that album, and that, that's, a, that's an album people should check out for sure, and a band that people
1: should check out. Haken, go listen to them. Hey, uh, always good to talk Oasis with you. Um, obviously, a band that's uh, meant a lot to us and an album that we uh, certainly have spent uh, many a time with others uh, defending, and uh, really enjoyed uh, the discussion with you. Anything else you want to say in closing, Nicholas?
3: No, I really enjoyed the discussion and we'll, uh, we'll see everybody again soon.
2: We'll see you again soon for episode four on Two Twins and an Album.
0: Two Twins and an Album Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.